Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Today we're going to be talking about the repo market, the repurchase agreement market, the real backstop to the global monetary system, not central banks. We're going to talk about its history to help you better understand why it is so important. Jeff, we're going to be going off an article that you wrote at Real Clear Markets. It's an essay. The title was Why Does the Fed Spend So Little Time on the Past? July 29th is when it posted, and the repo market has been in operation for a bit over a century, going back to World War I, and I'm very happy to see that it was the Fed this time trying to find a way around the rules, as opposed to bankers who are always doing that. This time, it was the Fed. The irony of ironies here, right? The repo market in its earliest existence was all about the Fed. The Fed essentially introduced repo to the U.S. market. There have been securitized or secured transactions before then, but a more formal marketplace was developed in 1916 when the government tried to sell Liberty bonds. And, you know, for, you know, that was a tremendous amount of bonds to sell and they were looking for any buyers anywhere. And of course, they were knocking on the door of this independent central bank that had just been created a couple of years before and said, hey, can you help us sell some of these Liberty bonds? And the Fed said, sure, I'll help you sell Liberty bonds. But you know what? I'm legally prevented from funding the activities of non-member banks, which there were a lot back then, as well as investment firms, brokers, dealers, and things like that. So wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Maybe I can find a way to fund those activities that doesn't conflict with the existing Federal Reserve Act. And what they hit upon was, oh, well, we won't treat it like you do when somebody comes to the discount window and you rediscount collateral bills and things like that for a member bank. Instead, why don't you just buy the security, buy the Liberty bond from this non-member bank or from the security dealer with the agreement to sell it back to them in 15 days? And then won't be in violation of the rules because it says you can't rediscount uh, non-member banks and securities firms because this won't be a discount. You're buying the security and then selling it back. And then presumably you'll buy the security again and sell it back. And presumably you'll buy the security again and sell it back. And you could just do that over and over and over again. And what will happen is you'll essentially sell a bunch of Liberty bonds on your own funding. As you probably noticed, finding alpha is already harder than ever. Consumer prices, recession, on and on and on. So where can you turn? Experts are flocking to alternative assets to protect their portfolios from so much instability. And one alternative is rapidly gaining traction. That alternative has more than doubled the appreciation of the S&P 500 over the last 25 years, while also demonstrating very low correlation to the typical investments of stocks and bonds. This alternative asset also tends to spike in value. The only problem is, unless you're an insider or a billionaire, it's been impossible to access. And I'm talking about fine art here. And Masterworks, which is today's sponsor, has used tech and finance to disrupt this market, opening it up to investors across the world. Masterworks has a proprietary data set on the art world, one that is so extensive that they select less than 3,000 of the paintings they're offered, looking for those with the highest appreciation potential. Then Masterworks acquires the paintings, breaking it up into shares for you to invest so that you can diversify with art that fits into your budget. And you can further diversify among artists and different paintings and different styles too. Through 2022's turbulent marketplace, 
Masterworks is still generating consistent returns. In fact, check them out, go to their website, look at all the information. To date, Masterworks has sold five paintings with an average net return of 26.8% to investors. So with stocks and bonds and everything down this year, Masterworks is in very high demand right now as people are looking to diversify. So there's a waiting list. But because they're sponsoring our show, a special offer to our audience, you can skip the line by just clicking the link in the description to get priority access. Check out Masterworks at the links below. The headline, the key line that I want the audience to go away with, the key message here is that the Federal Reserve, despite creating, inventing the repurchase agreement market, is somehow oblivious to it, <laughs> despite it being the backstop for the global financial system. And here, in 1954, Edward Simmons, Jeff, you'll have to tell us who he is, in 1954 wrote a damning quote that is still true today, 70 years later, quote, although not a negligible fraction of Federal Reserve credit, government securities acquired under repurchase agreement attracted little attention in discussion of central bank policy. We saw the same, same thing, paraphrasing 1981 Drysdale affair. It's amazing, right? And here we are today. And I think that's the, again, the irony of ironies, the early repo market. And this was all, all the way up until, get this, the early 1950s. The early 1950s. So the repo market was flourishing after the, after the Liberty bond issuances in World War II. It was flourishing during the 1920s with the Federal Reserve in the middle of it, gauge its balance sheet, bank reserves, all that stuff were actually important to the repo market in the 1920s. Then the Great Depression happened. Don't know why the Great Depression happened. Maybe it has something to do with all these borrowed reserves and repo. Maybe not. Repos kind of disappeared in the 30s because everybody said, hey, this is new. It's risky. We don't really want to do that anymore. And let's face it, securities businesses were pretty much out of business anyway. And then it came back in the 1950s with Korea. And it came back in 1950s with Korea in the same way, in the same manner it had been in the 19-teens with World War I. The desire for the government to fund its deficits and wink, wink, nudge, nudge, let's use these repurchase agreements for securities dealers to buy a bunch of treasuries, but then fund them on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And so what Mr. Simmons, a well-known researcher at the time, was saying was, wait a minute, you guys, the Fed, you have been heavily involved in repo from the very beginning, yet you never talk about it. You never have much to say about repo when it's a not negligible portion of your own damn balance sheet. Why don't you guys talk about repo? And he had some more specifics, Jeff, about how not negligible it was. It was, can you tell the audience, it was almost half or approximately equal to their main operations? Their weekly operations by the 1950s had gotten to the point where they were doing almost all repo. Their mar the okay. open market desk was, you know, roughly, there was more transactions in these repurchase agreements than there had been in simple open market operations because at that time, of course, the Federal Reserve was heavily involved in the Treasury market, the Treasury Accord, all that stuff. But yet, as, as Mr. Simmons was saying, why don't you guys talk? I mean, this is an important part of the financial system, not just about treasuries, not just about interest rates, but as a whole here. There's a funding mechanism that's going on here that's central. It's a big part of the, the entire financial system because remember back then, in the early aftermath of World War II, 
pretty much all the debt was out there was U.S. Treasury debt. There wasn't a whole lot of private debt at that time. And all the Treasury debt that was priced and moved around through the system was the basically the financial system itself. Now, was this was it the Federal Reserve didn't want to talk about it in the 1910s because it was a little squishy whether or not this was legal and they didn't want anyone to look into it? Is it the same thing with the Korean quote unquote conflict that maybe you didn't want to draw attention to it? Jeff, is is that why they didn't want to discuss it or did at some point their main operations were being funded by this? And it was just, I don't know why they wouldn't want to discuss it. Well, there's a couple things there. The Fed actually is certainly in its earliest days. In fact, I think I quoted from the 1919 annual report of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which said, hey, this thing, this repo thing is going really well. The market's really enthusiastic for it, because why wouldn't the market be enthusiastic for it? So in some sense, they would, they, I mean, they, they acknowledge it. They weren't really, they weren't really that embarrassed, let's say, about breaking the rules. In fact, I think in some ways they were proud of it. And so by the 1950s, the lack of discussion, remember, there's, you know, there's tons of private discussions that we're never really privy to. And what I think the, the, the power for the quote from Mr. Simmons to me is that what he's saying is they won't even talk about it in private. And I think the reason for it is not because they were, oh, we don't want to talk about it because it's a dirty little secret. We're, we're breaking the law here. It's because they didn't understand how important it was. They didn't really get repo. It was just kind of this thing that happened. It became an important thing at times. But as far as they are concerned, their mandate was all about, get this, bank reserves, not repo, not collateral, not the securities lending business. But we, our job is over here. This other stuff, this repo stuff, that's kind of, eh, we have to do it because we have to do it just to keep the system. But it's not really important. We don't think it's important. So we're not even going to talk about it even though in the 1950s, it had become a big part of their daily business, their daily transactions, they were focused in this other direction. And you're exactly right, Emil. You fast forward to the 1980s, what happened was- Wait, okay. wait, before we fast forward, I'm sorry. When did the transition take place? Maybe that's what you're gonna ask because right now we've just been talking about the Federal Reserve during yes. the purchase agreements. But there was a transition where all of a sudden it was the private system doing it and they, oh, how would I describe this? Just a hungry man at a Las Vegas buffet is just, I, I, I don't know, you know, engorged, gluttony. Eventually, they went nuts. But how did that transition take place? When did it take place? I know it'll shock you, Emil. Sometime in the mid-1950s. Just coincidence, right? Sometime in the mid-1950s, the securities dealer... And we mentioned this before in our petrodollar episode when we look back at the system of the eurodollar system and how securities dealers suddenly were using the eurodollar system for various activities. So we have the Federal Reserve in the earliest decades gone from the very beginning with, with the central part of repo, but they didn't want to be part of repo. Sometime around the mid-1950s, the securities dealers and all these other banks that were involved decided they really liked this repo thing, but they didn't really want to be involved with the Fed. Let's move this thing, not just amongst each other. We won't do business with the Fed anymore. Let's move this thing offshore too, so that we have this transition in the 50s and 60s, along with everything else in money. That by the time we get to the 1980s, the Fed is still saying repo, what's repo? Collateral, what's collateral? When it had entirely transitioned into this private, mostly offshore, mostly bilateral bespoke system 
there wasn't just this niche little market to trade in government de- uh, government securities. It was or fund government securities. It was instead, as you said, the backbone of the entire euro dollar system. It was it was also the way in which the euro dollar system would scale up from its from its very small origins because that's the only way to transact business across national boundaries, across you know time zones. Otherwise, you're you're stuck dealing with only those banks and, and financial counterparties you're familiar with. But if you introduce a little bit of collateral, suddenly you can do business with anybody, even if you don't know them. If somebody's putting up a U.S. Treasury security as collateral, even if you, you and I have never done business before, suddenly we can do business on a day-to-day basis without much, without asking too many questions. So that transition, the early days, the Fed at the center of repo to the euro dollar system, suddenly repo has become the, the very means for scaling up euro dollar business. In, in the 1970s, it became quite widespread, such that by 1981, we have a quote here in the article from the head of the Boston branch of the Fed from Mr. Morris, where he talks about how M1 is just simply no longer legitimate because repo is being used as transaction balances, as a checking account. You have a security of some sort with a long-term maturity, but now you've moved it over into this repo transaction. Now you can use it as cash because you're repoing it overnight every single day. The, that was the 1970s, 1980s. Jeff, let us know if anything happened. <laughs> I think so, because by the very early 90s, we've got a situation where the, the entire financial system of the U.S. government Every particular agency in the U.S. government has anything to do with finances investigating Solomon Brothers and 98 other dealers and noticing slight irregularities. And by slight, I mean absolute outright fraud, flagrant flaunting uh, to try to get their hands on collateral repurchase agreements to fund their entire their entire operations. Jeff, before we transition to where we are today, did I skip over any important details in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I mean, we skipped over a lot of important details because we'd be here forever. And that's kind of just, you can kind of see the outlines of the transition just from these little anecdotes along the way. But that's the point we're making is that from the 1950s forward, repo didn't just become a private affair, it became the central private access of liquidity throughout the global system, such that, you know, we keep coming back to Solomon Brothers in the early 1990s, because how did that not ring alarm bells at the highest level? If you've got 98 of the biggest dealers in the country cheating, keeping two sets of books so that they can acquire on the run securities, how did that not lead to a bunch of where was the congressional investigation? Where was the studies? Where was that? No, it was the same ethos at the Fed as in the 1950s or the 19-teens. They did not want to talk about it because they wanted to focus on what it is they wanted to focus on, which by that time wasn't even money, as Mr. Frank Morris was saying in 1981. We don't even define money. We're just going to focus on our expectations policy, the details, the repo, the collateral, not our job, not our business. We'll let the banks sort that out. We'll focus on what we do, the monetary system will do something else and we don't really we're not going to really keep track of it. Incredible. The we keep hearing that same echo. 1954, uh Simmons is saying the Fed doesn't even pay attention. Then the Drysdale affair, 1980s. They had an opportunity. They see the snowpack is unstable. Something went terribly wrong in repo. 
Uh, let's just get the snowflakes back into the right order and get interest <laughs> payments where they're supposed to be. Then the Solomon Brothers, we heard about Solomon Brothers. Everyone's heard about it. Nobody's heard about the 98 other dealers. Incredible. Incredible. Jeff, because what? They kept, they just said they would not see the forest. They would just focus on the trees. Okay, Jeff, today we we're talking about repo and how important it is, how the Fed's ignoring it. And the Fed's ignoring it again. And this time we can follow that in real time by looking at markets. We know where the Federal Reserve's reverse repo rate is, and that's an important number. It's at 2.3%. But short-term bills, four-week bills, eight-week bills, the three-month bill, some of those are below or very near the overnight rate. And that means what? Collateral demand in the repo system? Yeah, and we just did an auction this week of four-week bills. The four-week in particular was extremely strong. The top level, the highest yield that was sold, or the highest yield that was accepted by the Fed uh, or by the Treasury was 2.11. So almost 20 basis points below the RRP. I think the median was 2.09 or something like that. The low rate was in the 190s. So you have to ask yourself, why would anybody buy these things if you could just take your cash and lend it to the Federal Reserve on a collateralized basis at the RRP rate, which is 2.3? So the only answer is there has to be some special utility, some valuable utility in the instruments themselves that you only want these treasury bills. You don't need the actual return or you're not you're willing to take the price of the tre- pay overpay for the treasury bills rather than get the same return you can get at the Fed. And of course, the answer to that, which is the liquidity premium the market is paying for the best of the best quality collateral. And if the market is paying through the roof, this massive liquidity premium for treasury bills, what does that say about the rest of the collateral in the system? Well, don't ask Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve, because for the 100 years that the repo market has been in existence, introduced by the Fed, they will not discuss it. Jeff, I should say something, but you ended very well there. That's just perfect. Uh, Jeff, you're working with Stephen Van Meter. Just let people know very quickly where they can go and then also tell them about our membership site and uh, what they can learn there. Quick one. Investors, if you're looking for portfolio strategies, go to PortfolioShield.net. Steve and I work for Atlas Financial. There's a bunch of portfolio strategies there. All the information is available at the link. For research, if you're looking for macro research or market research, go to MarketsInsiderPro.com. It's free for now. Sign up there. It'll be a subscription-based service uh, relatively soon. Not sure when the, the launch date is. And the thing that you and I are really, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the thing that I'm really excited about is the memberships and the flood of members that we've gotten. We're, uh, Mila and I are, ex- are producing exclusive content for Eurodollar University members. You can check it out at eurodollar.university. There's a section for members where you can sign up and see what's there. We've done a deep dive into securities lending. We've done a question and answer. We're gonna do more questions and answer. You have the ability to submit your own questions, get them answered in the members section. And today we're gonna to look at something that I think most people have been asking for for a very long time. We're going to get into balance sheet construction. We're not going to get all the way into it. We're going to get our, we're going to dip our toe into it. And we're going to talk about VAR, risk, volatility, correlation, all that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of content that we're we're putting together at the membership site. So marketsinsiderpro.com, portfolioshield.net, and eurodollar.university. And again, a huge, huge thank you to all our members who have signed up so far. And anybody who considers buying a membership going forward, 
from the bottom of our heart, thank you very much. Thank you.